expected when they when they sat was that um, although they would hear some wonderful and interesting things at the conference, no doubt, that what was important out of it was to listen for some path or some practice or some way that they could take and cultivate and develop in their lives so that it became more a part of the way they or we live than just some new set of even very noble or wonderful ideas or ideals. Last week, when we talked together, the talk ended up being about grieving, as those who are here know. Really, in some way, a talk about what to do with one's heart with grief and the seeking of the kind of strength that one can find through wisdom or understanding. How to deal with the pain or loss or confusion or not understanding things when people die or when there are big changes in our lives. And then other people brought up in the topics questions about working with disappointment in meditation. What happens when I sit and at the end I'm inevitably disappointed? Or how to work, some woman asked about working with anger, getting very high and happy and then a little while later again feeling angry. Or working with uh, sustained physical pain. And so, a key question for our practice is how to work with these things how to make them a part of our spiritual life. This is from Kabir again, the great Indian mystic poet. Lord, he says, a fire is raging without fuel. No one can put it out. I know it spreads out, inflaming the whole world. Even in water the flames sprout. No one knows any device. As the city blazes, the watchman sleeps happily thinking, my house is secure anyway. Let the town burn as long as my own things are saved. But even as you think of this, you disappear from one birth to another, your body forever unsatisfied. No one is so stupid as one who knows this and pretends they don't. Kabir says, enough already, why not wake up in this very life? To wake up in this very life. But yet it gets confusing. One says, wake up, or open your heart, or learn to love, or pay attention, or let go, just let go. But how are you supposed to do it? I mean, how are we supposed to do it? I had a friend, uh, a woman who was a, who was a good friend for a lot of years. And one year, she had been in a relationship for seven or eight years with a man, and their relationship ended. And it ended with a great deal of difficulty and pain, as they can at times. And she was studying with a Korean Zen master, Sansanim, at that time, when he came to the West Coast, which was just periodically. And she was depressed and unhappy, and she talked to him about it, and she did her meditation, whatever, but it was still very painful, and she was grieving about it and depressed for a 
long time. And he saw her and he worked with her about it somewhat and she continued her practice and it just stayed that way. About a year after the breakup, she was still quite depressed and upset about it. And we were together at this conference where Sansanin was teaching and he saw her and she was still in that state and he reached into his bag and he said, I have a present for you. And he pulled out a beautiful set of Korean mala beads, of the kind of beads that one would use to say prayers or meditation beads. And they were really very beautiful. And he handed them to her. And he took her two hands so that she held them in her two hands, which she did. And then he held her two hands with one of his and looked at her and slapped her really hard across the face and yelled out, let go! <laughs> I mean, really whacked her. And I went... <laughs> and she went... <laughs> Fortunately, we had someone come to the door to help us this evening in the same process. <laughs> the question is how to do it, especially, I mean, you don't want to have that happen all the time. Maybe once in a lifetime is okay, but otherwise it would get a little abusive. It made a difference, though. It was amazing. She dropped it after that. That was quite a moment. <laughs> but we tend to hold on to things so long and in, in such kind of unconscious ways. When I was first beginning my own meditation practice in one monastery, in a particular Burmese monastery, I heard by rumor, it was early on in my training, that it was a good sign if light started to come in your meditation. So after a month or so of doing this kind of practice, this light started to rise, which it will sometimes for people when your mind gets a bit concentrated. And you see clouds or, or kind of the, the inner visual field turns light or it feels like there's a sun shining or all kinds of colors and so forth. And I got very excited naturally and I told the teacher and he just nodded and said, that's good, you know, continue to pay attention. But I interpreted his saying, that's good as, boy, this is just the right thing. And, so you should make more of it. And for two or three months while I was doing my meditation and kind of trying to follow instructions, he never mentioned it again. I kept trying to get more light and get it to stay and see how long it would be there and so forth. And only after a few months did, when I explained again in some way what was going on to him, and he said, you know, you're really stuck in your meditation. What's going on? Is there something that keeps coming every time you sit? And I said, yeah, this beautiful life, isn't this what's supposed to happen? And he shook his head. He said, no. You know, he said, how come that keeps coming? I said, well, I thought I was supposed to have that. And so somehow I manufactured it. And I got it to come over and over to replicate something, to try and make something happen again and again. And we get this idea in our life or our practice that we're supposed to make some particular thing happen or repeat something another time. So again, last week, people were asking, how do you work with 
disappointment in your practice, or getting high and then having it disappear, and having your anger arise, or body pain that comes and it stays for a while. And it's not just sitting meditation, of course, but this is really a metaphor for our whole life. And the problem is the same. It's really due to our ideals, to our ideas of what should be in meditation. And then we do battle with what is, and we try to make it how it's supposed to be. It's to, I feel disappointment. I know I shouldn't feel disappointment after meditation. She didn't realize that that's actually insight disappointment. But I shouldn't feel it. I've got to make some other thing happen. Or I shouldn't have changes of having it be high and then low. It should always stay high, or there should always be light. Or some idea that we then get in a battle with what actually is our experience. You know, fighting the good fight, trying to make our meditation or our life some particular way. There's a book I'll read a few stories from tonight, Wisdom of the Desert Fathers, again, and it's a lovely one with this. Uh, it's kind of a combination of Zen and the Christian Desert Fathers with beautiful uh, Zen calligraphy and drawings. Anyway, fighting the fight. There were two old men who had lived together for many years in their remote desert monastery, and they never quarreled. Now one of them said, let us try to quarrel once, just like the other people do. <laughs> and the other replied, I don't know how a quarrel happens. And the first one said, look, I put this rock between us and I say, this is mine. And then you say, no, it's mine. And after that, our quarrel begins. So they placed the stone between them and one said, this is mine. And the other said, no, it's mine. And the first one replied, indeed it is yours. Please take it. <laughs> and so they went away and they were unable to fight. What's asked for in our practice, this way of practice, is a very unusual realm given the way we live our life. It's a realm without expectation. It's a realm without measuring. There isn't a particular state or thing or experience that is supposed to happen that has nothing to do with wisdom or love or compassion. Remember the old rabbi story, don't know mind when he's put in jail? Well, I, I, I don't know. You never know. Again, these fellows speak. One of the abbots. A brother who was living newly among the desert fathers went to the, to the abbot Vasarian. What should I do? How should I practice? And the old master replied, Two things. Be still and do not measure yourself against others. That's all. Very, very simple. To stop the process of measuring, to allow ourselves to be quiet, and to receive what's actually here in the moment rather than our ideas about it. Now, what's interesting to discover in meditation is, as you pay attention inside, 
It's the mind which measures, the mind with thought. The heart doesn't measure. The heart doesn't have that capacity to measure. But we live in a very busy way, with so much expectation, so many plans. I have plenty of plans. It's not just you. All kinds of plans. So much comparison. And the future weighs on us, and we have to work it out and plan it and so forth. I'm not saying that one shouldn't make appropriate plans and think. But we tend to live so much in expecting mind and in what should be mind and in trying to fix it mind. And it never really turns out quite the way we imagine anyway, does it? Today at the conference, I spent a bit of time with Ram Das. We sat together for doing a couple of things. And he said his father had just died, finally, at around age 90. Um, and he said it was a very good death. They'd prepared for it and talked about it, and it was a very peaceful death. And Ram Das had been working on his father's dying with his father, who gradually was more and more ill over a number of years and done a lot of inner work and so forth. And it was and it was just how it was supposed to happen. He also said it was amazing because my father died on the same day, September 11th, that my guru died. And that was, am- it was like a gift from his father somehow together. But then he looked at me and he said, you know, even though I did all that work, I'm amazed to find there's all this stuff happening in me. My father died. <laughs> and he said, and I was sitting and just trying to meditate and be peaceful at this bandara at this celebration and all these tears started to come out and this whole grief welled up in me and there was nothing there to be sad about and I thought I'd work through it all with my dad and then I just started to weep and cry we have our ideas about how things should be but the inner reality and the outer reality both they move along in their own way Now, how can we work in our meditation or with a meditative awareness in our life with this difference between our ideas and expectations and the reality of our experience of light and dark and up and down and sweet and sour and pleasure and pain, the the dance of our life? We get mistaken and think that if we can fix it a certain way, which won't stay very long when you think about it, that that will satisfy us. If we get a certain experience or a certain relationship or a certain thing to happen for a period of time, because that's all anything happens, then it will be all right. But it doesn't really touch that place of very deep longing. It doesn't touch that place that seeks to live in the truth of reality. And that place can only be satisfied when we are with things in the present, in this moment, as they truly are, and not in all of that other stuff. So how do you work with it? Here are a few ways that really come directly out of our practice. The first is to actually become aware of expectation and ideas and ideals as you sit or as you work in your relationship with another person or as you do your job or 
whatever parts of your life there are, if you do your child rearing as a parent, to listen for that voice of ideals and expectations of what should be rather than what is. And not to condemn it or judge it or try and make it go away. That's just one of a thousand voices. But to give it its name and say, oh, expectation, it's good to see you again. Hello there. To make some friends with that voice so that you see it for what it is rather than believing it and going on the journey with it, going on the ride. To label it if you want. Oh, expectation, expectation, hi. Nice to meet you again, yes. Remember you from yesterday and the day before. <laughs> so to be on the lookout for it and to make it part of being conscious. Is that understandable to you? It's a wonderful thing. You might do it every sitting for a moment at least, somewhere after you settle down, five or ten minutes into it. You might look to see, now is there any expectation here? Oh, there you are, hello. You know, I expect that by the time I'm done, this will happen, or I'll have felt that, or I'll get rid of this, or I'll make that. Expecting, expecting. You just see that mind, the expecting mind, say, thank you, and come back to what's actually there. Now, a second way to work in your practice in your life that helps with this problem of ideals and expectations is to use a very careful attention so that when experience arises as you sit or walk or talk or whatever it is, that you pay attention and instead of getting caught in its in the ideas about it and all the thoughts associated, you actually feel what is the experience like of this moment? What is its size, its temperature if it's physical, its color, its shape, its texture? What's the intensity if it's a feeling or emotion or thought? Is it visual? Is it auditory? What's its duration? How long does it last? What's the quality of it? In the trainings in a traditional monastery, if you were working with the practice of the breath over some time, one of the ways that this is trained for people is that you're asked each day that you come, come in to see the teacher you're working with to tell that person something new about your breath. Now that's okay for a week or two, but how about six months every day? Something new that you discover about the breath quite extraordinary. Here's the 200th thing that I've noticed. But is there such a thing as 200 things to notice about a breath? Or a leaf? Or a flower? Or a, or a song? Or your hand? There is actually, as you listen. And in a way, this alone would be enough in your practice. This movement from the ideas of things to actually feeling it and seeing it carefully is the essence of the Buddha's practice of mindfulness. Because the more closely you look, several things happen. First, you experience them in the now rather than the ideas. Secondly, as you feel them and touch them with your awareness, they start to open. Awareness has this quality of allowing change or openness to take place because you're not trying to make it a certain way, you're observing it. And thirdly, no matter what you look into, if you look close enough, 
it starts to dissolve. You discover that it's made of ice that melts or, or um, whipped cream or foam or uh, there are all these images in the sutras of uh, echoes and rainbows and dream material. The more closely you look at anything, the more you see, you feel, you experience that it is in a process of movement and change and what seems so real is not solid. And it brings you to a level that is true of our life that is in motion and movement. So, to be aware of expectations, to bring the attention very carefully. If you feel stuck in anything in meditation, fine. Bring an attention so carefully that you can tell describe 50 things about that experience, that feeling, or that thought, or that sensation. And if you look at it that closely, something very interesting will start to happen. A third way to work with, a, with this issue of being really present is to notice if there is aversion or resistance in the mind. This also you could do beside expectations. You could do this once in a while in your sitting, maybe once toward the beginning, once toward the m middle or end, a couple times. Just in a silent way, ask yourself the question, is there aversion or is there resistance? And particularly, if anything seems to be staying for a very long time, almost guaranteed that there will be in some fashion or other. Either that or some very strong attachment on the other side. And when you feel that, again, don't try to get rid of it. What your task will be is to sit and note aversion, aversion, or resistance, resistance, and feel or explore or examine what is that quality of aversion like. It's very subtle, but when you name it and give it its name, all of a sudden you can actually feel it. And it'll last for five or ten Labels, if you use the labeling, aversion, aversion, aversion. And eventually, as you keep labeling it and feeling it, it will pass away, because everything does. And then you'll be free to experience whatever that experience is without the resistance to it. Not because you tried to get rid of the resistance or judged it, but you accept it fully and give it its name and be with it until it passes. A couple of people open some windows over there. It's just it's a little warm. Who's ever sitting? Aversion, aversion, <laughs> resistance, resistance. Let in a little fresh air. That's good. Thank you. This is this is a very subtle place in practice because we don't tend to notice it so well. We get in a position of relation to something. And we're not so aware that we really are trying to change it. So listen for that as you sit or as you work or as you communicate with other people. And see if you can let yourself notice, actually look for when there's resistance or aversion. Resistance, resistance. And observe that. What's that feel like? In doing so, it loses its power. And again, you come back fully to the moment. Now again, for feelings, as I've said in many other talks, if you label feelings, moods and emotions tend to last no more than 15 labels at most, very rarely more than that. 
which is to say that they tend to move through us three or four in a minute. It just seems to be the wavelength of those. Physical sensations might last a, a bit longer. Thoughts are even quicker, as you probably can see. So what's helpful is to look at the duration of what you're labeling or what you're observing or what you're opening to. Here's this experience, sad or happy or peaceful or frightened. You give it its name, happy. Happy, because that's very strong. And you feel what it's like and you see how long it lasts. And then you listen for the next thing. It's a listening to the process of change. Now another way to work in the same deepening of attention with what arises, particularly when one feels stuck with it, like disappointment was asked about, or anger, or frustration, or, or physical pain, is to try to let your attention go to the very center of it. If you have a place that hurts, see if you can find the very middle, the most intense point of it and see what's there to be found in the middle. Or if there's a feeling state, loneliness, or love, or frustration, or desire, whatever it happens to be, feel it and give it its name, and see if you can bring your attention to the very center of it. What is the center of desire feel like? What is the center of loneliness? The center of this place of holding? Because what keeps things stuck is generally our resistance to feeling them, our fear of them. And we feel like the heart isn't big enough to stand that one. And so we keep dancing around it. But it is actually, we can do that. Because Zen Master Suzuki Roshi was asked if he could sum up Buddhist practice in a few words. And he wrote a beautiful calligraphy that was just three short words that summed up Buddhist practice. And those words were, not always so. Extraordinary word, not always so. Whatever it is that's here, not always so. And to live in wisdom is to feel how much our life is in change, our relationships, our work our speech, our body, the world around us, is to live in that movement of change. By letting our attention come to the very center, we allow that change rather than dance away from it. And through it, we can come to find a kind of spaciousness or space or ground out of which all these things come. Because the more deeply you feel, and the more deeply we become present, the more we feel the, the moment-to-moment change of life. And it just comes out of nothing. It's like it pours this fountain of feelings and thoughts. Where do those thoughts come from? And they're going on all the time. They come out of nothing, they think themselves, and they go away. And then they decide to repeat, I know, right? <laughs> And then the feelings come, and there's a sad one, and a happy one, and a lovely one, and a beautiful one, and an angry one, and, and they keep pouring out of nothing, and sensations. And if you let yourself sit still with it and feel those, you can feel the space within which all of that arises. 
And even the space has qualities to it. Sometimes it's very clear and open. Sometimes at first, if it's desire or hunger or something, you might feel the space is dark or deficient. Sometimes it's filled with light. Space itself is permeated by qualities you can be aware of. What I'm talking about in this process is what makes meditation a journey and a very exciting one. It's a movement from expectations or ideas. If you're idealistic about your daily practice, you won't be able to sit more than a week, I guarantee it. I mean, if you have any ideas of what's supposed to happen in your daily practice, you're sunk. Because it doesn't do it. It's a movement from the ideas and the ideals and the expectation to a quality of discovery or inquiry or opening or, or mystery, whatever you want to call it, to feel the flow of our life experience, not always so. Now, at the three-month retreat in Barry one year, Zen Master uh, Kusan, who's another very famous teacher from Korea who, who died a few years ago, but he was one of the most the highly respected old Korean Zen masters. He came just toward the end of one of the three-month retreats that we taught. People have been sitting and walking and paying attention, doing their vipassana and so forth. And he got up there and he gave a short talk. He'd never been there before. And he said, ah, oh, vipassana, slow way, maybe even no good, wrong way of practice. All these people have been sitting for three months. They went, oh, no. It's a little like that fellow at the door again, right? Maybe he was right, you know? And he said, no, awareness, mindfulness, not the right practice. Only one practice. What is this? What is this? And he, he yelled it at everybody and said, you do it all wrong. Just answer one question. What is this? And sent them back. And it took about a week or two to put everybody back together after that <laughs> experience. But that really is the question. This is an amazing thing. Bodies and lights and cars and planets hanging in space and big balls of fire that we name stars and no one knows where they come from. And a million species of beetles on the earth and insects and strange things. What is this? So we sit and make ourselves a little bit quiet in order to turn the heart and the mind together to face directly this reality, this changing reality of birth and death, of change of life. To sit and face into the wind. A brother came to the abbot and said, Abbot, a great variety of feelings and thoughts keep arising in my meditation and my mind, and I feel as if I am in danger. The old abbot took him out into the air and said, Open your robe and take hold of the wind. And he answered, No, I can't do it. I cannot. The old man said, If you cannot grasp the wind, how could you grasp these thoughts and feelings? There's no need to try to. What you should do is simply stand in the middle of them and enjoy them. It's only wind. It's only the changing conditions, birth, death, 
happy, sad, light, dark. It hasn't changed from since a long time ago, has it? I mean, it's the same old dance, the same story. And to settle enough to feel that movement is the movement of meditation. Not to make something or to change it or get a particular state or experience or ideal, but the eyes and the heart of wisdom and compassion are those which open to this reality and somehow let it touch with its grief and its loss and its beauty and its creativity. In the system of chakras, it, it's not just the heart, but there's a kind of opening of the crown chakra, which it means, whether it's literal or metaphorical, the crown chakra is that place within your being where you can sit and see the entire dance of the universe and say, wow, what an amazing show that sees the sorrows and joys and beauty and suffering and all of those as they arise and change, as they come out of nothing, out of this one that we are and are not. Today at the conference, uh, I went to a lecture by Albert Hoffman, who's the old Swiss chemist who 50 years ago this year uh, first synthesized LSD and then accidentally tasted a tiny bit on his way home and had a very unusual bicycle <laughs> ride. <after that. laughs> and he's a great old guy because he's a, he's a, he was wearing his gray three-piece suit and he's a you know he's a, like a Swiss chemist and a Swiss banker put into one a very formal old gray-haired man who is a, both a businessman and a scientist. And he talked about the adventure of discovering that. He calls it his, what kind of child is it? His problem child, right. Um, and he talked about the theory of trying to understand what, what made it work, that someone could take this little bit of microscopic amount of something and their whole reality changed. And he went on about that for a while. And then he went on to talk about the temples in, Greek in, the mystery, in Greece in the old days and the mystery schools, um, the illusion mysteries, and how whether you read a number of the great writers and masters from that time, whether it was Plato or Cicero or whatever, they were all at some point in their life indoctrinated into those mysteries. And he said, once you were given that initiation in the mysteries, you were sworn to silence at the cost of your own death. And no one ever talked about what they were, although he had all this evidence that it was really some, some potion that was part of that process, some ergot that grew in Greece or some magic mushroom. And then he talked about, imagine if when Bush or Dukakis wins the election, if before they took office they went to the temple and were given the sacraments and initiated into the cosmic mystery, what a different kind of government we might have based on that. Hmm? Maybe not. One doesn't know. It's true. But the spirit of it, I mean, here he was, this kind of Swiss banker talking about that. He was really in drag, as Ram Dass said, something else. Um, what he talked about somehow was 
that mystery that touched so many people and does and still to this day can of bringing this life that we live in into a perspective of wisdom and of love and of its mystery. As Rumi says, you're not the crow that you think you are, but the mystical osprey that sails above the mountains and the seas. Did anybody see when they drove here to, to, to the church this evening the fog on Mount Tam? And it was so beautiful. It was just like living in one of those Chinese watercolors or one of those beautiful paintings. Not always so. I close with a poem from Ryokan again, because it's autumn, the mist on the mountains. And he says, after the first night of rain, water covers the village path. The, this morning, the thick grass by my hut is cool. In the window, the distant mountains color of blue-green jade. Outside, a river flows like shimmering silk. Under a cliff near my hut, I wash out my ear with pure spring water. In the trees, the crickets recite the fall verse. I prepared my robe and staff for a walk, but the quiet beauty keeps me just here. I don't have so much to say in a way, even though there's been this outpouring of words, or maybe I don't mean so much in words. I appreciate that we can just come and sit together, and I hope in some way to have communicated that the sitting is much more an opening and a listening and an allowing, and that the understanding will come from that more than any idea or hope or expectation that we might have. Anyone like to say anything or discuss anything? Please, if you wish. She asked a very wonderful question and, and probably the most obvious one. She said, it seems to her, if I understand right, that expectations seem important and, that, that, and good and that you need them and that if you had no expectations, you'd really be in trouble. So how does that fit together with talking about no expectations? Let me think for a second here. <laughs> Abundant expectancy, that's a nice phrase. Abundant ex expectancy instead of expectation. That's a, that's a lovely phrase. Another way to put it in some way is to have a sense of direction. In that sense, to have goals even, but not to be attached to them. 
So, for example, in a relationship, if you expect a person to be a certain way for you and, and you're going to be that way for them, and that's how it's supposed to be, you will suffer. Guaranteed. <laughs> Why? Because you can't even make yourself the way you want to be, right? <laughs> Try making another person that way. Or even if they fit it for a day, you kind of work it so that they listen and they try and fix themselves to be the way you want that day for you, then you'll probably change what you want when you get it, you know? And again, you'll be, you'll be caught. So it doesn't work initially in the relationship. Um, you can see it clearly, the expectations create the suffering. Then how can you make a commitment? There's a really big difference between commitment and expectation. And this is really part of the, the heart of your question, and it's a very good one. You can either make a commitment, we will try to be exactly the same for one another and hold on to one another, not change, um, in which case you suffer. Or you can say, I'm committed to live fully with you, to, to grow in the direction of consciousness, of kindness, of greater love, of support for you being who you are. Without expecting how that person is going to be or how you should be, you can make a commitment to the very process of living with the heart open or living in a wise way. Similarly, you can make it to the earth because you are the earth. You come from the soil of the earth. And you can feel that and say, I commit my life and energy to caring for the earth as for this body. But without, I mean, you can have expectations. You're welcome to have, have a lot of expectations. I mean, we all do to some extent. To the extent that you're attached to them, they become trouble. Is that, is that helpful? Yeah. A bit. Yeah. Please. one from another. Also, and, and that clarifies this question again, and it's good. There's a certain mental quality in, in Buddhist psychology um, called sanya, which is really, it's called recognition. And one of its functions is to understand the order of things. And that those kind of expectations of knowing that most people will drive on the right-hand side of the road, and, and, and uh, that there is a social order, and so forth are part of that understanding, and they're, they're critical in our life and in living. Let me see if I can, I'm, I'm not even sure how to answer, so I'll just take it step by step and see if I can make some sense out of this. First of all, in the domain of spiritual practice, even there, there are what one might call um, useful expectations. That is that if you sit, or if you do some spiritual discipline or practice, um, it, you can expect that there'll be some benefit that comes from it. That's kind of what we're peddling here, right, in some fashion? <laughs> I hope so. So even in the spiritual domain, there is, there is some truth to that. The problem comes 
when you begin to do that activity of meditate, or perhaps you do an activity in relationship with it, joining in a relationship with another person, and you add to that expectations of how your feelings are supposed to be, or how your thoughts are supposed to be, or how that person is supposed to feel toward you or think toward you in a relationship, or what state you should you should have as if you possessed and controlled it. So one of the things that might differentiate it is that there's a useful framework of understanding that expecting spiritual practice itself might be helpful to you. But then within that, there's an opposite process that is essential. You cannot learn without it. And that is, you bring yourself up to the window or you sit yourself down in the meadow, suppose you're a naturalist, and you might say, I want to go because I expect in the evening I can learn about birds or whatever. And then you wait and listen. And that movement, at some point of stopping and not trying to see what you're supposed to see or make it a certain way, but just listen, is critical for spiritual development. It is also very helpful in many other human endeavors. It's helpful, again, in relationship. It's helpful in art or other things where there's creativity called for. And maybe, as I, as I try to explain it to myself, try to figure out your question, maybe there's really a kind of dynamic of both of those being important, that there's a certain framework of appropriate expectations about our life and appropriate plans. But within that, when you get there, <laughs> when you arrive, then a key element, equally important, is the capacity to listen for something new. I don't know if that helps. What is the prayer? What's the prayer in AA? Dear Lord, please give me, grant me the serenity to accept the things I can. The wisdom to no the you you probably everybody knows that prayer and you do as well. And so that's that in a way what you're saying that speaks to that dichotomy in some way that there is things to attend to and change and at the same time there's a whole dimension of our experience and a very profound one that we really need to be in touch with in our life and especially in this culture which tries to to control and contain and direct everything that we don't have control over. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.